Well, it is my honor and privilege once again to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of First Peter, where we have been for a number of uh, weeks and will be for a number more. If you didn't bring a Bible with you to church today, we have provided one in the pew ahead of you. It's black and beautiful, and we'll be on page 1015 of that Bible. We have... Um, a wonderful passage in, in front of us. This passage that we're about to read this morning, First Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 9 down to 10, is to me one of uh, my life verses. This, this verse really ha- means more to me than almost any other written word. And uh, I'm excited and um, humbled that you would uh, give me the privilege of teaching it to you this morning. I've asked the Lord in my life for more than 80 years that he would give me more than 80 years on this planet. And uh, should the Lord be gracious and pleased to answer that prayer. And after I have uh, buried my wife and kissed some great grandbabies, I hope that when I am done in this life, my epitaph would read something like, here lies the body of a man who proclaimed the excellencies of Jesus until he got to see those excellencies face to face. If, if, I, if I land there, and that's accurately spoken of me, to me, that will make my life worthwhile. Any suffering and difficulty in life that I have yet to experience will have made it worth it if I can proclaim his excellencies through it. It is such a meaningful verse to me. So as I open the Bible uh, and read these words with you, I just ask that you would open your heart, just kind of lean into this passage. Uh, This is, as I said, one of my life verses, and because God has chosen me to be your pastor, that calling on my life is spilled over into this church. And so one of the, I mean, the mission of Cornerstone Piqua is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus in Piqua, in Miami County, in the world, and until Christ becomes all and in all. It is the mission of this church. So it's kind of spilled out of me into what we do as a congregation. And so as we open this, I want you to see how wonderful this is because this is a, a, just, a, just, a, just a, a centering kind of verse. It really just gives you direction and orientation. So he, here it is, Second, First Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. And uh, we're going to read down to verse 10. We're going to be handling two verses this morning. Verse 9. I'll be reading from the ESV. For, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, you have been so kind to bring these words to us this morning. Would you continue in this kindness by removing from us 
the things that would keep us from hearing it, understanding it, and finally applying it to our life. Father, it's not my words your people need to hear this morning. My words are not words of eternal life. My words save no one. And so I ask that what I say this morning would be from you, that I would speak, as Peter says, like an oracle, the words of God. Move upon me, your servant, this morning. And if there's anything in me that would hinder your word, I pray you remove it, and that you would strike me dumb before I speak one word against or contrary to your word. Give us the words of eternal life this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this passage begins with the phrase, you are, which is a big deal. It should give us reason to pause because the Bible is God's word and as we read it, God was speaking to you. And when you sit at home and you open up your Bible and uh, read it, which I hope you do, you are reading God's words. God is speaking to you. And when you come across verses like verse 9 where it begins with a phrase like, but you are, we ought to listen attentively because God is speaking to you to tell you what you are. Everything we need to know about God and about the world we live in and about ourselves is contained in in the Bible. Everything. Who you are is in the Bible. Why God made you The meaning and purpose and identity of your life is in the Bible. If you want to know what the meaning of your life is, you find it in the Bible. So that's where we look. Look, mom and dad can be helpful in this matter. Grandma and grandpa can be helpful in this matter. Philosophy may help you with some road signs toward what you can take those um, personality tests like the Myers and Briggs ones, not like the Facebook ones that tell you which Marvel superhero you are. You're not going to find out your true... I'm really sorry about it. Somebody's like, dang it, I wanted to be Wolverine. Those don't help you to know who you are. And the Myers and Briggs and those other personalities, they, they may help you to kind of give you direction and point you in a direction, but you're going to find your identity and meaning in the 66 books contained in the scriptures. And so... If, if you hear anything this morning, if I can convince you of anything this morning, I hope that it's that you finally, if you haven't already, come to the realization and belief that God's word is enough. It is sufficient to answer all of life's questions, like the big ones, the, the big existential ones, and the little ones too. The little practical ones of everyday life. You don't, Cornerstone, you don't need a spiritual guru. You, you need the scripture. You don't need a spiritual experience to find out who you are. 
You just need the Bible. Sometimes God will come to you as a, in a burning bush like he did to Moses or with an angelic visitation like he did to Mary. Or he may knock you off your proverbial horse or out of your car, as it were, and he may speak to you. He may blind you as he did the Apostle Paul. But that's not the normal experience. I don't even believe that we should pursue that as an experience. Because all that you need for life and godliness is contained in these words. And so that's where we turn. Well, we're going to learn as we read and unpack these two verses, three things will come to the surface. Peter addresses at least these three things, and we're going to look at them in succession. If you got a program when you walked in on the backside of your program, you can follow notes, follow along with the notes as you want to. But we're going to see God addressing three of the most pressing concerns that we have in our life through these two verses. First, we're going to learn who we are. Who are you? The second thing is, why are you? And then finally, how is it that you are who you are? And at the end, I hope to give you a couple of points of of practical application of these verses. This very well may be the most important sermon you've ever heard. Or you may fall asleep. Either way, I've set my expectations on both sides accordingly. But this passage means a lot to me, and so this is where we go. The first point that we see coming to the surface in verse 9 is this, who you are. But you are these things, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Few words are more important than these words This is who you are. These are identifying words and phrases. And they're helpful. The struggle to find meaning and identity and purpose, I think, is a universal one. It's not just relegated to, you know, teenagers and 20-somethings. I think we all struggle with trying to learn who it is that we are. Every person, regardless of their age or socioeconomic place in the world, they struggle to understand who they are. So the first thing we see in this passage is uh, just how revolutionary Peter's words are. I want want you to see this. It's kind of important that you see this. See, in, in the Apostle Peter's day, to the people who he was writing, identity and meaning came to a person based on external circumstances. For example, they lived in an agrarian society and they lived in a day where you learned who you were based on where you were born and to whom you were born. You were born to a farmer, for example. That meant you as a young man, you were to take on dad's business and to be a farmer. If your old man was a blacksmith, then you were to be a blacksmith. Who you were is dependent upon the family you were born into, the race you were born into, your people group, and your location. That was, that's where identity came. That's where meaning came from. So if you were born to a wealthy family in kind of the upper echelon of social, social standing, that's how you lived and that's how you interacted with those around you. And there wasn't a whole lot of uh, emphasis, like there is in our day, to get out of where you are. You just accepted it. Because this is the world you were born into. Your meaning was built on external circumstances. 
all of that began to change. That was predominantly the way people looked at their life for most of our history. But all of that began to change somewhere around the 18th and 19th century. You remember Rene Descartes and his cogito ergo sum, the I think, therefore I am. And then after that, a whole bunch of these existential philosophers started coming about and coming to the surface and began showing that your meaning is not something that's based on things outside of you, but it's something inside of you. It's internal. We ought to look inside us to figure out who we are. The individual began to become the sovereign over meaning and, and, and identity in your life. And so now we live in a day, even though we've, we've progressed beyond modernism into pre-postmodernism, now we still live in a day where to find meaning in your life, you ought to look inside of yourself. When you, when you answer the question, who are you? It comes from inside of you in the postmodern philosophy. And that's what makes Peter's statements so revolutionary because what Peter is saying in verse 9 is it's not external circumstances like your old man or who you married that determine who you are what Peter is saying is it's not even your internal convictions about who I am as a man who I am as a woman who I am as an individual that's not who you are Peter is saying who you are is determined not by internal or external circumstances but by God himself he's the one who gives you meaning and identity and purpose identity comes from God now I want you to remember that Peter is writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a group of people that he calls in verse 1 of chapter 1, elect exiles of the dispersion. These were pre-modern folks who had been dispersed because of Christian persecution out of their homeland into a place that was not their own. They were foreigners, exiles as it were. So the kind of umbilical cord for finding meaning in their life had been severed. If you find meaning in who you are as an individual, in, inside of your social standing, inside of your family, and you get moved from that place, you have difficulty figuring out who you are. And so Peter's saying, who you are is not who your parents are. Who you are is not who you married. Who you are is who God says you are. And so God, the Holy Spirit, comes to these elect exiles and uh, rescues them from their existential crisis. And he says through the apostle, um, and to us all, four things. These are four foundational, life-giving, clarifying phrases about who you are. And we'll look at each one in succession. First, you are a chosen race. Peter's alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 7 where Moses is explaining to Israel, God's chosen people, about the process that God used in choosing them. He's alluding to this passage. It's just beautiful. Let me read it to you. It's, uh, Mo- if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, it goes like this. This is Moses speaking to Israel about who they are and how is it that they became God's people. And this is what he says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has 
chosen you, sound right, sound familiar, to be a people for his treasured possession, sound familiar, out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. So God chose you out of every people group on the planet. He chose you, Israel. He chose you. And then he explains why. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. Did you catch this? He says, the reason God chose you is because... God chose you. The reason God loves you, Israel, the reason God set his love on you, Israel, is because God loves you. You are a chosen race. Why did God choose you? Because God chose you. Maybe an illustration will help. I, I know I got the kids in here uh, this morning, and so I'm going to use an illustration that makes sense to everyone. It's not a perfect illustration, but it's the best I could come up with. So here, here you go. Imagine God the Father in heaven. He's, he's holding tryouts for his baseball team. Okay, so God the Father has a baseball team, and he's holding tryouts for who can be on God's baseball team. It's baseball season, so I figured I'd use that illustration. So what he does is he takes every person who has ever lived and they try out for God's team. But you see, here's the thing. The tryouts to be a part of God's team are so difficult. You have to be perfect to make the team. It's God's team after all. He's not going to lose any games. So you have to be perfect to play on his team. And so everybody tries out and everybody's striking out. He's the one throwing the ball. How do you hit a ball that God is throwing at you? You're going to strike out. How do you catch a ball that he's pitching? You can't catch it. You fail. And everyone fails the test. No one makes the team. All the people who have ever lived, no one makes the team. Moses tries out. He fails. Abraham fails. David fails. Jamie fails. Everybody fails. So here's what God does. Got to have a team. So Jesus puts on a jersey, gets a baseball glove, and Jesus tries out for God's team. And Jesus makes the team. Because Jesus is perfect. So Jesus is now the only person on God's team. Well, as you know, you need more than just one person. So Jesus becomes the captain of the team, and Jesus himself begins to pick and choose you to be a part of the team. And he says, I want Jacob on my team. He says, I want you on the team. I want you on the team. And he begins to pick you and put you on the team. This is the doctrine of election. This is God choosing you to be a part of his team. It is not one, uh, a doctrine that causes you to boast. It is a doctrine that causes you to be humble. I didn't make the team. He chose me to be a part of the team. First Corinthians 1 explains this. When Paul says, God chose the low and the despised in the world, the ones that didn't make the team, so that in the end, no one could boast for being on his team. You see, being a part of God's team is not because you were lovely, but it was because Jesus was lovely. 
His choice in choosing was his own. And it was because of his loveliness that he chose you to be on his team. You are a chosen race. Next, Peter says this. You are a royal priesthood. We, we, we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, and so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it this week. But the priests of old would offer animal sacrifices at the temple as a, as a way of mediating between the people and, and offering animal sacrifices for sin and, and for generosity and for other things. Well, as we learned last week, we're not priests like that anymore. There are no animal sacrifices necessary. Jesus was the last sacrifice. Therefore, no more animal sacrifices are necessary for sin. But the priesthood itself has continued. And there is no priest in, in, in a way that uh, maybe you might think when I say the word priest. You notice I'm not wearing a collar. You notice that I'm not uh, a, any different than you or anyone else. There in Christendom, there are no priests who hold an office of priest. Because every Christian, saved by grace through faith, is a priest to offer spiritual sacrifices, as we learned last week. And so here Peter comes and he calls you a royal priesthood. And this is because we are to lay down our own lives as sacrifice in service of God for his use and his sake and his purpose. You're royal because you're working in the king's house. <laughs> you belong to Jesus, the king. And as a priest of God, that makes you royal. 30 says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and then he calls you a holy nation. A holy nation. I remind you, the word holy means set apart and different from something else because of its special use. It means set apart for a specific and special use, and it refers to um, persons or objects which were used for a special purpose and therefore they weren't to be mingled with the rest. In the Old Testament, objects were holy because they were used in worship of the Lord. And Peter means it in that same sense here. God is using you, individually you, to accomplish his purposes and therefore because of God's choice in choosing you, making you a priest and giving you this new family to work in the family of God, you are called to be holy, different from the world. You are a holy nation. And so this means, as a Christian who's been called out of darkness into light, you're called to live differently than the world. You're, you're supposed to live differently in the way that you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your energy and resources and talents, and uh, the way you speak, the thoughts you think, your priorities the way you raise your children. You have to be different from the world. Holy means different. And so let me be clear about holiness. The Bible says, not my words, in the book of Hebrews, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. God cares how you live your life. He cares dearly how you live your life. 
You may remember from chapter 1, Peter says this, As he who called you is holy, so you also should be holy in all your conduct. God cares about everything you do in your life. What you do and how you conduct yourself matters to God. You are called by his name. Now, that should probably come with a, with a bit of a caveat. Certainly no, no one is capable of perfect holiness in this life. We reject the doctrine that says that uh, perfect obedience to the law of God is, is possible, attainable in this life. However, this ought to be no excuse for spiritual laziness and apathy towards matters of personal holiness. To be a Christian means to fight sin, to war against sin. It grieves me deeply when I hear professing Christians who are who have no remorse for their sin. Professing Christians who will tell me there's, there's no fear in them for walking in sin. They're casual with it. And I see in them no fighting, no warring, and no waging. Now, occasionally, I'll get in my office folks that come in and, and, and they're struggling with sin. Brothers and sisters, I'm okay with your struggle. That's good. You struggle, you fight, you war, you level all your energies at your sin. What concerns me and grieves my heart is when someone comes in and is casual with their sin and finds it no big deal. And this is why 1 John chapter 3 says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So we ought to level all our energy in the war against sin. Friends, even if it means getting rid of that which is most important to you. I remind you of Jesus' own words in Matthew 5. If your right hand causes you to sin, lob it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Because he says, it'd be better to go to heaven without a right hand and a right eye than to go to hell with all your members. That's how big of a deal sin is to God. Of course, he's speaking metaphorically, but we should feel the force of his words. You are a holy people. Lastly, Peter calls us a people for his own possession. It's been said before, your identity is not based on who you are, but whose you are. And Paul makes this point back in the Corinthian letter again, the first one, in addressing sexual sin, and he reminds the Corinthian church, he says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We are a people belonging to God. He paid for us. He bought you. The price he paid, the death of his son. 
Let's give him his money's worth. God cares what you do with your body because it's his. So that's who you are, Cornerstone. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's your identity. Now, now that we know who we are, let's look at why we are. Why we are who we are. This is the big why question. What is the purpose of my life? And this is how verse 9 answers that question. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the great answer to the why question of, this is the great meaning of life question. Why were you born? Here it is, to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. For me, this has tremendous meaning. It's deep meaning. As a young man, I struggled quite a bit to figure out who I was. You know, as you're navigating through high school and um, you're trying to finish and, and trying to figure out who you're supposed to be, where you're supposed to go to college, if you're supposed to go to college, and all those heavy questions that weigh on. And, you know, 18-year-olds, they're supposed to know that, right? You're supposed to know. When you're 18, you've had so much experience in life and tried so many different things that when you're 18 years old, you ought to know exactly what you are to be and who you are. Isn't that the question you've been asking for the last few weekends at graduation parties? What's next for you, young man? What's next for you, young lady? As if an 18-year-old is supposed to be able to answer you with clarity as to who exactly they are to invest all of the next 20 years of their life, 30 years of their life, when they're 18. Well, I couldn't. And uh, yet I answered the question the way every other grad answers that question with some lame line about college of some kind or another, which I never went to. I have yet to go to a graduation party and have an 18-year-old grad answer me accurately and truthfully that question. Right? Yeah, you know, I'm not real sure. I might try college, but it's a lot of work and responsibility. So I'll probably fail out. And then I'll move back home and live in my parents' basement for a few years, bounce around at a few dead-end jobs, impregnate a teenager or two, Finally, I'll drink myself into a coma and have my stomach pumped. You'd be like, go get my card and get the money out of that card right now, okay? I'm not, no way am I funding this bozo. But yet, that's too many times what happens. So as a young man, I answered and gave the same lame line and because your career, I guess, is supposed to reflect who you are, but I didn't know who I was, so I lied, and, and I still went to college, and I majored in euchre while I was in college, um, spent a lot of money and got nothing for it, but eventually, God was gracious, and, and, and I was smart enough to turn to the Bible, and thankfully, while I was in the Bible, God answered me there. And I came across two verses as I was 18 or 20 years old. One of them uh, was in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. It's a real short verse. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says, 
This is the will of God. And when I read that, I, like, boom, I was like, all right, here we go. Let's get it, right? Because I, I was looking for a career. I was looking for a job. I need to know. Well, I found a book in the Bible called Job, but it just confused me. And so I kept reading and uh, I found this verse. It says, this is the will of God. And then it says, your sanctification. And I'll be honest, I, was, I felt let down by that verse. I was like, this isn't like, Moses got specifics. Like he said, he said go to Pharaoh and, and do business with Pharaoh. Like Paul got knocked off his horse and said, go here, meet this guy. Uh, even Peter got some clarity. And this isn't clarity for me. This is too ambiguous. But I repented and God showed me there's tremendous freedom in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. This is the will of God, your sanctification. It means, hey, Jamie, go do what you want to do. Be sanctified while you're there. So if you want to be a writer, be a sanctified writer. If you want to roof houses for a living, be the most sanctified roofer. If you want to be an attorney, be a sanctified attorney. Because with God, all things are possible. Be whatever God has laid on your heart to be through your desires and talents. Just be sanctified when you're there. The other verse God brought me to was this one. 1 Peter 2.9. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God was speaking to me through his word and saying, whatever you go do, you do it well and you find a place in that place to proclaim his excellencies there. Do something and while you're doing it, do it for God's glory and tell everyone about the excellencies of Jesus. Whether it's on the line at a factory, whether it's in a hospital or a classroom or from a pulpit, proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. This is the purpose of your life. This is why God made you. This is why God saved you. Listen to Isaiah 43. We read it at the beginning of the service. I give you water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. And here's why. You're in the wilderness. I'm going to meet you in the wilderness. I'm going to take care of you in the wilderness. And here's why. The people whom I form for myself, that they may declare my praise. In other words, proclaim his excellencies. You are God's sounding board in your workplace, in your family network, in your social circle. You are meant to resound with the praises of his innumerable excellencies. And so when circumstances change in your life through factors that you could not control, 
The question that we ought to be asking is not why these things are happening in our life and fretting over the future. Rather, we should be asking this new change in my life. How does this provide me with new opportunities to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus where my new assignment is, whether it's a new job or a new home or a new uh, whatever? I have found no one better at explaining this than Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was a pastor of a small church in Northampton, Massachusetts from the year 1723 to 1750 when he was kicked out. He once preached a sermon from Revelation chapter 5. There's a passage in Revelation 5 where Jesus is called a lion and a lamb. And he preached a sermon and he entitled it, The Excellencies of Christ. It's a tremendous sermon and I recommend that you can read it for free online. Any, any of Edwards' sermons that have been published, they're free online. It's, it's a somewhat lengthy one, I'll warn you. Near as I can tell, after having read it a number of times, near as I can tell, it must have taken him two hours to preach it. And some of you whine because I take 45 minutes. But he preached two hours on one subject. He would take one verse and preach it for two hours. And in this particular sermon, his focus was on, uh, he calls it the diverse excellencies. I'll just use his words. The admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. Basically, what he's saying is that there are certain attributes and characteristics which are absolute opposites which meet together in conjunction in Jesus And he spends two hours talking about how these things meet in him alone. He mentions uh, infinite highness and infinite condescension. He mentions infinite glory and lowest humility. He mentions majesty mixed with meekness, reverence toward God and equality with God. He mentions obedience to God and dominion over all things. He mentions Jesus' sovereignty and Jesus' resignation. He mentions Jesus' total self-sufficiency combined with Jesus' total reliance on God, infinite justice and infinite grace. Edwards, Edwards was obviously enamored by the beauty of Jesus in the things he saw there. This is a man who must have spent hours gazing upon the beauty and loveliness of Jesus in his word. I, I doubt very much that I would be able to spend one hour on these intersections in Jesus. And he wrote, Thousands of words on the subject. I tell you this because this is your cause to proclaim his excellencies. To be a proclaimer of the excellencies of Jesus. So you ought to know what they are and where to find them. You'll find them in the scriptures as you meditate as you study, as you dig, as you get your fingernails dirty in God's Word, of spending time there and meditating and memorizing and seeking God here. And as you do, He begins to transform you. And in His grace and lovely mercy, He begins to reach out to you and show you the beauty of Jesus in His Word. The beauty of the passage that Matt read at the end of praise and worship. There's so much... In Ephesians 2, 
You could literally spend a year there and not exhaust it. It's so profound and wonderful. And it's all about Jesus. So if you are to be a proclaimer of the excellencies of Jesus, go looking in God's inerrant scripture and uncovering them and equipping yourself to speak them on the platform that he has given you in your workplace and among your friends and among your family. And may God be pleased to use you in this way. Last thing we see. We're on in third head of Rome. Once, verse 10, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So where do you begin? Proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. You could start in verse 10. That start telling folks how excellent he was in choosing you, though you did not deserve to be chosen. That you were without a people and God made you his own. That you didn't have mercy. No one was showing you mercy, but God showed you mercy. Tell your testimony. You know, I won't lie. One of the reasons why I have uh, invited a number of you to come up here and share your testimony on Sunday mornings, one of my motivations for doing so is I think it ought to be kind of normal for us to know what to say in sharing our testimony of how God saved us. One of the manifest excellencies he's given to you is saving you. So we, have, we should put language to how God came to us when we were in darkness and brought us out of that darkness into his marvelous light. Tell your testimony that I was in darkness and God called to me and brought me out. You know what God did with you when he saved you was the same thing he did at the tomb of Lazarus. You recall the story of Lazarus who was a friend uh, of Jesus and he died. Jesus let him die. And he goes into a tomb and they roll a stone over the tomb and he's dead for a few days and Jesus shows up and he says, roll away the tomb. And, he, and Jesus himself speaks into the darkness and says, Lazarus, come forth and life was brought back to his dead body and he got up and came out of that tomb. The same happened to you. When God came to you, just like Matt read, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And Jesus said, Brett, come forth. And life was breathed into you and you got up and walked out of darkness into his marvelous light. Same thing. Why not tell that story? Proclaim that excellency. Live as one who is is chosen, as a royal priest, as a holy man and a holy woman, as one belonging to God. Wherever God has placed you, be sanctified and, and live as a holy nation. So that when people see the way you live, your good works, they'll ask. They'll see the way you talk. It's different. They'll see the way you, you think at meetings. Different. 
They'll see that when someone wrongs you, you don't retaliate. They'll see you blessing your enemies. They'll see you not getting angry. They'll see you reading your Bible at lunch. They'll see you not getting drunk on the weekends. They'll see you loving unlovely people. And they'll ask. And you'll tell. Well, friend, let me tell you. I don't retaliate against my enemies because once I was an enemy of God and he didn't retaliate against me. I love unlovely people because I am an unlovely person and God loves me. I don't steal because Jesus gave everything for me. He will provide for me. Just tell of the excellencies. Proclaim the excellencies wherever you are. Be unrestrained in your praise. And maybe, just maybe, God would be pleased to use you to shout into the darkness of your friends and family and coworkers and bring them out of darkness into the marvelous light. And you can proclaim together. May God be pleased to do this among us. Let's stand to our feet. At the end of the services, what we always do is we reread the passage. And I give you an opportunity to reflect on what you've heard in God's Word and to repent that as God spoke to you this morning in His Holy Word, maybe there was something that convicted you. Conviction is just a feeling of being like, ah, it's, nah, that's wrong. And understand what conviction is. Conviction is a work of God, the Holy Spirit. It's a work of God. It's mercy of God showing you your need for Jesus. We serve a God who's attracted to need. And one of the functions of preaching is to expose our need. So as I read this again, feel your need. And let it draw you to Jesus. And see him on the cross. And maybe God would be pleased to take your sin off of your life and place it on Jesus. And the penalty that you deserve, the punishment you deserve for your sin, for which you are culpable, he would bear on himself. And you would be saved and enjoy eternity with him. God's word says this. You're a chosen race, cornerstone. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So I would like to invite you that if you are not a Christian, that you would confess your sins 
and put your dependence and trust in Jesus alone and be saved from those sins and be saved from hell forever. And if you are a Christian, you would use this next few minutes as we sing one more song to confess your sins. Because the Bible says that if you confess them, Jesus will forgive you of those sins and make you clean. And if you are convicted because you haven't been proclaiming his excellencies where God has placed you, then let this be the day you resolve to do so. This is a new day. So let's do that. Father, we give you these next few moments and we ask that you would be gracious to move upon us. Would you be so merciful as to expose the sin in our heart? Search us and know us. And then I pray, Father, you would give us the grace as you've exposed our sins. Give us grace to confess them and depend upon you for forgiveness. In Jesus' name.